Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Uzair Yunus and over the last couple of weeks as we started this year we were covering uh, Pakistan's political outlook and with Arif Anur we covered Pakistan's economic outlook with um Khurram Hussain and my goal was this week to cover Pakistan's foreign policy outlook uh with somebody from Pakistan to sort of lay out okay if a new government comes in what would be their diplomatic priorities with Afghanistan and uh, India and and sort of the GCC and China and others uh but then events intervened and a foreign policy development happened in real time uh which is basically that Iran uh, uh in an unprovoked uh, way attacked Pakistan after which Pakistan then responded and retaliated uh with a similar set of strikes in Iran um right now as we are recording this uh Pakistan is having high level meetings in Islamabad the interim prime minister flew back from Davos uh, to conduct those meetings so we'll have additional information of what's going on uh, out of Pakistan at least in just a bit um but i figured i invite my dear friend Kamran Bukhari to talk about what is going on so much uh, stuff happening in the region and now all of a sudden uh sort of Iran Pakistan uh, uh had a showdown which you know just for a fact based uh, uh information for all of you the attacks Pakistan conducted are the first missile strikes in Iran since the end of the Iran Iraq war in 1988 so it's, this is not a, a routine type of development that happened for those of you who don't know Kamran Kamran is senior director of the Eurasian Security and prosperity initiative at new lines institute they do fantastic work and he has a very uh, good grip on iran and its sort of foreign policy and strategy in the region and beyond so kamran thank you so much uh, for taking out the time on this cold snowy morning in the dmv area thank you for having me uzair so i want to begin this conversation first by sort of getting your view on why the irgc um did this and why now given what's happening in lebanon and gaza and with the houthis in yemen and the red sea etc the indian foreign minister was in iran as well you know partially to sort of convey messages from america that nobody wants an escalation here and the indians also have a stake here that this doesn't you know go out of hand in terms of what's going on um and then this morning as i was sort of reading the news before we hit record Amwaj Media had a story sort of with sources uh, which I've linked in the description about like what the Iranians were trying to do and it was like maybe they forewarned Pakistan maybe they didn't different sources were telling them different things um what's your assessment of at a time when Iran is sort of you know staring eyeball to eyeball through its proxies with Israel why would they all of a sudden try to open a new front with pakistan which over the last few years has tried to really engage with iran and address many of the concerns the two sides have well that is the big question isn't it um uh, so the way i look at it is you have to look at the broader strategic imperative and the constraints of iran uh so yes there is a uh, conflict brewing through by proxy through uh with israel uh but there's a broader conflict and that is the main conflict which is with the us um the israelis are worried about their borders so they're worried about hezbollah hamas and the militias in syria perhaps in iraq but the region as a whole especially this red sea stuff and the the attacks by the houthis that are spreading to the wider arabian sea basin that's a us thing and, and if you notice in washington there is now open talk 
that nothing is working. You know, it doesn't help to hit the Houthis. Uh, it does not help to bring a, a carrier strike group into the Eastern Med to uh, because you want to control Hezbollah. And these strikes against Shiite militias in Iraq and Syria, these are just not working to go and is Iran. Now, this is something that the Americans have never done. Uh, um, you know, there have been clashes in the Persian Gulf. Um, the United States did uh, take out uh, the IRGC QF leader, Qasem Soleimani, but that was in Iraq. It was not on Iranian soil. So the argument that is being made very publicly in Washington is that, look, you have to tell the Iranians the cost of doing this. And the only way to do that is to attack Iran directly. Now, Iran is not oblivious to this. Iran has to somehow ward off such an attack. And I'll get into here in a bit about, you know, the flip side as well, because there's a debate going on inside Iran, according to the people I talk to. Uh, but Iran has an imperative to say, well, look, if you are going to come after us directly, then there's going to be a cost. So how does Iran demonstrate that? The Iranians demonstrated that by first uh, hitting in Erbil. Uh, but we all know that Erbil is part of Kurdistan. Kurdistan is part of Iraq. Iraq is a vassal state of the Iranians. So in other words, they're actually just striking in an area where they have, they're the dominant power anyway. Then they struck something with, uh, in northwestern Syria, which is a first because they've never fired missiles. I don't recall them firing missiles that far out. And so that was a show of strength and say, hey, if you come after us, we have these capabilities. What they're trying to say is we can hit your bases in the Persian Gulf. We can hit uh, the Fifth Fleet. We can hit the UAE, Saudi, Qatar. But again, Syria is also a vassal state of the Iranians. The Iranians have to demonstrate something out of the box, something unexpected. Pakistan is the logical choice if you look at it from an Iranian point of view. Pakistan is mired into so many problems that you were just talking about. The Iranians are completely aware of that. They know that there's a crisis of leadership in the military. They know there's a political crisis the financial economic crisis, the, the problems that barely holding the line with India and keeping the calm on that border and attacks by TTP and tensions with the Afghan Taliban Emirate in Afghanistan. So they thought this would be a low cost, high yield way of demonstrating to the United States that look, do you really want to go that far? Because you are stuck in Ukraine, your Congress isn't willing to pay for uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian weapons. Russia is, seems to be gaining on you. You have a war in Gaza. You get attacked in Syria and Iraq by militias. The Houthis are doing something unprecedented. Now do you, we, can, we can make this more ugly. And you're going, you're Joe Biden, you're going into elections at a time when the polls aren't really holding up for you. Exactly, exactly. So this was the thing that they calculated. Now, um, what did they think? How did they game out whether, how would the Pakistanis respond? So there are two you know, possibilities. One is that the Pakistanis, which did not happen, but the Pakistanis you know, diplomatically take a very strong stance, pull their ambassador or you know, cut ties or whatever, but do not take the military option. That's good for the Iranians. I mean, they can live with that. 
let's say Pakistan retaliates. They know that the situation that Pakistan is in, that they cannot afford a long drawn out conflict. So, okay, they'll retaliate, we'll absorb it and we'll somehow deal with it. And that's exactly what happened. So I think that this, Pakistan is a pawn in this game. Pakistan has nothing to do with everything else that Iran is doing. So to say that this is about Baloch rebels, either Pakistani Baloch rebels or Iranian Baloch rebels or some Iranian Pakistani thing, it's missing the point. The big picture tells us, and, the, and today you, know, you have the Iranian military, uh, both the IRGC airspace forces and their Navy, as well as the Air Force and the Navy of the regular forces did uh, exercises, at least they're ongoing uh, based on what I know. And the geography of that, those uh, you know, exercises is pretty wide from Abadan all the way to Shah Bahar. That's pretty much the entire coastline of Iran. So if there's, if Pakistan, the border with Pakistan in the Balochistan region is important, then why are they doing exercises there? Who are they worried about? They're worried about the United States because the temperature is, is increasing and is getting a bit uncomfortable and they have to adjust. They have to reevaluate and adjust. That's fascinating, and 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 so you know the, your point on on Pakistan and and where it fits in. You, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was paying attention to what the Iranians were saying at Davos. Right, initially, two things caught my eye, and I think I would love your thoughts on 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 my view on this as well. One was that they were saying the strikes in Pakistan were somehow linked to Israel. Now there is an old. Um, perhaps credible because it's been covered in Western media and outlets as well, that the CIA and Mossad were using Jundullah, which is the precursor to Jaysh al-Adil as a mechanism to stoke, you know, violence and other things in Iranian soil. So when they say this is linked to Israel, maybe they're pointing to the fact that they have some evidence that Jaysh is in doing something related to this broader Middle Eastern uh, situation, uh, and therefore they struck. And But then the more interesting thing that I sort of, paid attention to, and I, I thought it was not a smart choice by the Iranians, was sort of comparing Pakistan to Iraq, saying that, you know, whether it's Iraq or Pakistan, our security, and we're willing to do whatever it takes for our security, I'm paraphrasing here. And I kind of sort of looked at that and said, well, if you're in Pakistan, particularly in Rawalpindi, in the military, you don't like that comparison and you will do whatever it takes to get away from that comparison sticking in not only the region, especially with respect to India, but just in broader global terms as well. Because as you said, Iraq is a vassal state of the Iranians um, and it cannot respond in, in a way that perhaps Pakistan has the capacity to respond, right? The willingness was the question, do you really want to go down that route? And my feeling was the moment you made that comparison as Iran, Iraq and Pakistan are the same, you're forcing General Munir's hand of saying, no, we're not, and we're going to come at you. And I would love your thoughts on that point of view, in addition to the fact that when I was paying attention before Pakistan responded to the conversations in Pakistani media, the civilian leaders, Hinara Banihar, the former foreign minister, Khwaja Asif, the former defense minister, and others including retired diplomats, were urging restraint. And my view was that you don't reestablish deterrence by restraint, and General Munir went the other way. So how would you first 
did Iran's messaging sort of force General Munir's hand? And then how would you sort of rate the way in which the military in Pakistan decided to respond to Iran to establish deterrence? Both fascinating questions. So the first one first, uh, I think that yes, because look, there any action has consequences. And then you force Pakistan into a situation where it has to, you know, its sensibilities about its imperatives uh, gets heightened. So what what is General Munir's problem? A, he's uh, a, a controversial army chief, okay? Uh, more controversial than we've seen in, in, in recent memory. He has an imperative to not show that he's a weak person. Uh, on top of that, he has a mess at home and he has two borders that he has to worry about. And this is the third one. So yes, he's going to do something, but again, he's constrained as well. While he has all these problems, does he want to pick a fight with Iran? And the Iranians game this out. So yes, if you compare with Iraq, um, and, and I believe that that was you know uh, pretty sly messaging, the use of Israel's links to Pakistan and whatnot, because they know it's it's kind of like a dog whistle. Uh, it's it's in Pakistan. You basically you, you know that there is this anti-Israeli, anti-American, anti-Western sentiment, uh, and it, it it could create problems. So by saying that. You're also doing like info ops perception. Which I was going to, if I may interrupt, I was going to say you're you're absolutely right. And we have evidence for that because uh, both on social media and YouTube channels and stuff, some of the folks that are a bit more sort of critical of the Pakistani military establishment are taking those talking Iranian talking points about Israel and sort of saying, oh yeah, the establishment now is in cahoots with Israel and sort of leaning more towards the Iranian line here than they perhaps would otherwise have done so. No, absolutely. And, and, and there's a broader point here, which is that, look, you need a narrative. You have to say why you did something. And it's never the truth. <laughs> I mean, the whole idea of public relations is to obfuscate reality. And saying that, hey, we struck northwestern Syria because there's Takfiri, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, jihadi elements there. We struck Erbil, the capital of Iraqi Kurdistan, because we there's a, a den of Zionist, you know, uh, operatives there. And to say and, you know, allude this in, you know, not very vague terms. I would actually say this is pretty clear that you're telling the Pakistanis that, oh, you're, wor you're working with the Israelis against us. So, and then this Jaishul Adil and, you know, all that narrative, and I would even add in the Pakistani response narrative as well. You have to say these things. Ultimately, as I said earlier, this isn't about any of these issues. These are just the excuses. This is the narrative. The reality and the imperative is the Iranians uh, would prefer not to have a, or a need to ward off the United States. And these are tools and ways and means of doing that. Uh, why did Pakistan respond? Because, you know, it got struck and, and it, it can't look weak. It gives, it sends the wrong message to the Taliban, definitely sends the wrong message to TTP and others, to Daesh. 
and then the Indians are basically saying, so, okay, so we did surgical strikes in 2016. We did Balakot in 2019. And now the Iranians are doing this. So, you know what? There's space to do more if we need to. The Pakistanis have to hit back and say, no, if you do this, then there's a cost. And again, do you want to go there? And so it sets into motion a chain of events. Uh, I also want to add, if, if I have your permission, uh, bring up a point here, is that I'm also hearing for a, quite some time now from my from contacts is that this regime, given where it is today, is under a lot of pressure inside Iran. And there are those who are the more hawkish radical elements within the military and the clergy, uh, basically the political elite of this country that say, it's been too long since Iran has had a war. Because you have to, I mean, uh, you have to understand how they perceive the Iran-Iraq war. They see it as this great effort that, uh, and they, you know, they take pride in how they defended their country. And they think that it strengthened the revolution when it was designed to destroy the revolution. So they, most of the commanders that are the senior leaders for the past decade or so, I would actually say 15 years or so, are veterans of that war. And they now see that the revolution is stale, the population has no affinity with the revolution, and you know most Iranians were born after the revolution. So how do you revive that revolutionary spirit? So many of them say, you know, maybe a war with the United States can help us do that, help us solve domestic problems. There is a risk, but they are also assuming, and they may be miscalculating, that the United States is not going to go into a major war with Iran. All that the United States will do is some airstrikes and then they'll get to the table. That will give the Iranians what they need. That's a cost that they're willing to absorb. We have to understand this is a very uh, revisionist actor. This is a very aggressive, assertive actor. We can't look at Iran like we look at Turkey, Pakistan, India, the United States, even Israel. You know, Israel acts in its defense. This is a, an actor that's on the offense and it's battle hardened. It's and it has developed capabilities largely through asymmetric warfare, but is prepared for a conventional fight as well. So we have to understand that broader picture and place everything within that context. How do you then in that calculus, before I come to Pakistan, a follow on question is, and this has been in my mind uh, for a few weeks now, if I'm thinking of being the Chinese, or the Russians or the Iranians, right? Um, the Chinese, you could argue from the point of view of the West, particularly the United States, have a revisionist intent with as it relates to Taiwan. There are again, hardliners and non-hardliners in, in the CCP, uh, in the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so net, okay, let's say net positive view that China is a revisionist actor wants to eventually invade Taiwan and forcibly annex it. Um, in Russia, we already seen with Ukraine, revisionist actor. Iran, I agree with your point. It's a revisionist actor. We've seen this in Iraq. We've seen this in Syria. Um, and the revolution itself at its core is a revisionist idea itself. And then you're looking at the United States or the West and you're saying, okay, wait a minute, they're stretched. Their Congress doesn't want to fund. Europe has its own challenges. But the supply chains of war 
are ramping up because you know the 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 thing in DC as you very well know is China's ready by 2027 current estimates were ready by 2032 we need to close that timeline because otherwise our supply chains won't be able to compete if there is a conflict so those things are ramping up right and there's investment going on in all sorts of things so if you're the Iranians in this instance i would argue to say okay the the window for me to pull this off in a way that perhaps there's some cost, but I get what I need, is shrinking because the other side is also playing out its own supply chains, industrial maneuvers, technology maneuvers, et cetera. So I need to act. How do you, do you think about it in the same way? Like that's also part of the calculus from a purely industrial military capability point of view that their supply chains are stretched in Israel, in Ukraine, and this is my moment because eventually those things as they die down mean that the supply chain will be far more uh, capable of coming at me if I do something after. A hundred percent. I mean, that is a, a good way of looking at it because look, the Iranians factor in all of these things. As I said earlier, their read is that the United States is not ready for a big war, which is why I think they took the risk of striking at a nuclear state. And so th they look at all of this. They look at, they closely coordinate with Russia. You know, that they're supplying weapons to Russia. Russia in turn is helping them with intelligence and all forms of support. The Chinese are a bit different. The Chinese economy has taken a turn for the, for the worse. And, you, and if you look at the Chinese behavior, they speak a lot about Taiwan. They issue statements about Taiwan, but they're, that's not what's important for them. So in many ways, they're not a revisionist actor because they're so, their well-being is so tied to the global economy and with the U.S. playing ball with them in terms of trade, in terms of technology, uh, you know, the flow of technology and investments and whatnot. So I, I, would, I would characterize China a bit different. But yes, from an Iranian point of view, if you have problems with China, if you have problems with Russia, uh, you have problems at home. You do not have the ability to fight so many conflicts or manage so many conflicts at the same time. So yes, it's a window of opportunity. But I would also say that they're also running up against the clock because there's, there's something that's going on inside Iran, which is that in 2015 with the nuclear deal that Obama uh, inked with the Iranians, the Iranian perspective was... Uh, Great. We now have sanctions respite. And I wrote a piece back in 2013 predicting that this time there's going to be an agreement. Why? Because the Obama administration had done something that no other previous U.S. Uh, government was able to do, uh, which is to have really crippling sanctions. In 2012, uh, the Iranian ability to export oil had you know, went down to really low levels because for the first time, the Chinese, the Russians, the South Koreans, the Indians, the Japanese, they were all brought on the same table saying, hey, we need to pressure Iran to get it to negotiate on the nuclear issue. The Iranians looked at the Iranians have long had a chronic problem. How do you manage domestic political economic obligations with the, this very aggressive and assertive uh, you know, power projection in the Middle East. And you would add South uh, West Asia as well because they've been doing a lot of work on Afghanistan as well. So 
balancing that had become difficult. They'd gone as far as they could while remaining under sanctions. They needed respite. They got that respite and things looked good for a while until Trump came to power. Uh, and then when Trump nixed the nuclear deal, uh, essentially they went back to square one. So now they're running up against a clock, you know, and, and this aggressive action that they're doing could, you know, trigger far more sanctions on them. And so their window, that window of opportunity for them is also very short, not just because the U.S. is going to regain its posture. Right now it has supply chain issues, as you, um, you know, um, excellently put, but they also have their internal compulsions. They have a very restive population. Plus, the regime is going undergoing evolutionary, uh, you know, regime change, if you will. Uh, I have a report coming out next month on this, a very detailed on what a post-Khamenei Iran looks like from, from the New Lines Institute. Uh, and what I'm seeing is that uh, this republic, the Islamic Republic is reaching a major inflection point. After Khamenei's death, the clergy uh, is going to become even more weak and this will be a military dominated state. The problem is that there isn't a singular military. There are two competing parallel militaries and how they work together and then bring in the clerics. And, you know, these power centers have multiple sub-factions within them as well. So these are all the compulsions that are shaping Iranian behavior. There's threat and there is opportunity. Uh, they look at Israel. They look, they're, they're looking at how we have reached unprecedented levels of very public, loud, condemnation of Israel internationally inside the United States, something has, this has not happened before. They're looking at that and saying, that's an opportunity. Again, how long does this last? We need to maximize and milk all of this. Excellent. So let's switch to Pakistan now. And, and I want to get your take on the response that's come out uh, of Pakistan. My view was when the, when the Iranians uh, attacked Pakistan, that it had to respond in a proportionate way to reestablish deterrence. I think you're, you and I are on the same page on that one. A lot of the civilians, uh, as I already mentioned, were sort of urging restraint. Um, and the way I think about this is that General Munir or the military establishment in Pakistan had a few core constituencies it had to sort of signal to domestically and internationally. So domestically, as you I perfectly articulated earlier, that he's not weak, particularly that constituency is the rank and file and the core commander. So he had to show them that he's decisive and is able to respond to Iranian belligerents. He did that. Um, there is a nationalist base, particularly Sunni nationalist base um, in Pakistan. Um, so he sort of, you know, hit them in the right way of saying, yes, we still have the capability and the willingness, despite everything, to defend our territory. So I think he checked that mark off. Um, he had to take into account the Shia population in Pakistan and sort of not open a new door, a new Pandora's box with them, which I think they did with the, you know, the, the, the PR argument of this is, these are Baloch rebels. So I think he had success there in my book. And then finally, there's a regional and global, particularly regional audience in Saudi and the UAE and the United States globally. To say, look, there's only one power left in the Middle East that is both capable and willing to strike at Iran in the way that it did, which is Pakistan. So I think it sends the right signal to the strategic ally, especially in the region at this point in time. So I, I would give him 
four out of four points on these core constituencies that he's sort of given the right signal. How would you rate the response and the manner in which Pakistan has gone about very deliberately targeting seven locations in Iran and sort of saying, you don't get away with this? Yeah, no, I want, I totally agree with you. I, I would add that, look, the the General Munir uh, and the Pakistani, he represents the Pakistani state. Uh, the Pakistani state, regardless of partisan factions and whatnot, civilians, military, there is a state imperative. The state imperative is, uh, you, you, and the state imperative has, has manifested itself in the general behavior that Pakistan has had towards Iran. So everyone knows Pakistan is very close to the Saudis and the UAE, and the Saudis and the UAE are enemies of the Iranians. So Pakistan has always sort of tried to dance around this problem because Iran is a neighbor, and you don't want to, you have your own problems. Uh, you don't want to be pulled onto the Western flank in this manner. So how do you do that? And then there is sort of this geosectarian problem. Uh, it's not just the sizable 20% or so uh, Shia minority in the country that you know the Iranians like to tap into. By the way, I'd like to mention that uh, there's a sharp contrast between how the Iranians have been so successful in penetrating the Arab world and reaching out to their masses and making allies in the Arab world while they have not succeeded at all in Pakistan. So that speaks to the strength of the Pakistani narrative, that speaks to the strength of the Pakistani state's counter moves uh, and done in a very sort of non-aggressive way, non-bellicose way, uh, to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we know who we are. You know who we don't want to pick a fight, but we're not going to let you uh, influence our people as well. So, I think that that's a longstanding uh, issue that General Munir had to build upon because you do not want that to be eroded. Those are gains that are not made in years; they're made in decades. If you go back to General Zia's Pakistan, uh, we had huge Sunni Shia strife because of the logic of you know, his rule and the logic of, you know, the the war in Afghanistan, just the climate in the region. Uh, and it seemed for a while that Pakistan could become a major geosectarian theater. Uh, and we know Iran, you know, relishes these opportunities. Uh, Iran wants to uh, maximize, you know, uh, or at least maximum, um, take the maximum mileage out of these fault lines, exploiting them and whatnot. But it had not. So, now that Iran directly struck Pakistan, how do you maintain that reality uh, where you've kept away? You've, you're right there. You have, you're vulnerable. Daesh is there. By the way, you know, that's a, probably a conversation for another time. But I also see Daesh and Iran uh, as sort of mutually reinforcing. They, all, they both depend on geosectarianism for their own purposes. Obviously, Iran is a state actor and Daesh is a non-state actor. But the logic is the same. They benefit from geosectarianism. They're enemies of each other, but they need each other. So uh, Daesh is in Pakistan. There's a long history of targeting of Shia Hazara communities in Balochistan, the same area. So there's a lot at stake, uh, you know, for Pakistan. Pakistan cannot just sort of say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're friends with the Saudis, so we're going to go hard in that camp. Yes. 
you know, General Rahil is part of the Islamic Military Alliance, but everybody, you know, he was made the head of the, the Islamic Military Alliance, a former Pakistani army chief. But we have to remember that it was that same army chief under the former Nawaz Sharif government that told the Saudis, hey, we don't want to get involved in Yemen. So Pakistan has stayed away from this geosectarian uh, clash or conflict. Uh, and, you know, and it's been difficult. And so I think what in, in order to appreciate what has been done, I mean, look at the way in which the targets were picked for this counter-strike. It had to be potent. It could not be just sort of, hey, symbolic. But it, could, it did not go as far as saying, we're going to go hit the Iranians. They were very careful about that. The messaging is very, very careful. Uh, so it's a very difficult balance. If you become too careful, do you get what you are out to achieve, which is, or do you obtain that, which is reestablishing deterrence? If you go too far in that, do you unleash unintended consequences that have to do with geosectarianism and the vulnerabilities that come with it? So I would say this was done uh, very nicely, but I would also say that this isn't over. I think there's a pattern that has been established that Pakistan will find it increasingly harder to remain clear of what is broadly a Saudi-Iranian rivalry. So let's get into that in, in, in just a moment. But I wanted to sort of, you know, you said it was nicely done. And again, I want to underline that point, uh, particularly given this podcast and the fact that I cover a lot of the economy and cover a lot of the military's role in the economy and the political economy and criticize it. But let's be, you know, give credit where credit is due. They've done a really good job navigating this tricky situation, given all of the dynamics we've all talked about. And I, for one, like, you know, sort of appreciated the, the carefulness with which this whole process so far has been handled. And I think we need to sort of appreciate that fact. And I know in social media, polarization, all of that is so deep that people are unwilling, a lot of people are unwilling to recognize that. But I just wanted to echo your point and underscore that. What I add here is that I'm not absolving the Pakistani military of everything else that they've done. So that's a separate argument. We can debate that for our friends who look at the Pakistan army from that singular lens. Uh, but this is above partisanship. This is an issue of state. And, and this is national interest. So it has to, we have to sort of switch gears and not there, particularly in the PTI camp, we're making hay out of this and, and coming up with crazy narratives and saying, oh, look, you know, this is weakness. At least one of them is actually uh, openly, you know, flirting with pro-Iranianism. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's important. So let's move on. Last section of this conversation. Um, what you it's not over i agree with you it's not over i think there's a lot more to come what are some top two or three scenarios in your mind that perhaps we all should understand think of and sort of look at things from that point of view what are you going to be looking at moving forward here given that this is such a fluid situation and given i think we both agree on this uh this is saudi iran and iran us and in that whole context there are there are sort of fissures here for Iran to exploit, but also its own challenges that it has to keep into account. So what are you going to be looking at? 
So let me start by answering that question by going back to the point you made earlier about this being the first uh, you know, state actor attacking inside Iran since the end of the Iran-Iraq war in 88. That's very important because let's do empathetic analysis on the Iranians for a moment from a different angle. Yes, they went, they struck at uh, Pakistan and then they absorbed an attack by counter-strike by Pakistan. But they have to be wondering that now, you know, Israel, U.S., and even Turkey is getting ideas that, hey, you know, this kind of taboo that we had, that you can fight Iran through its proxies because it fights through its proxies. Uh, we just don't want to, you know, uh, shake that hornet's nest of directly clashing with Iran on its soil. I think the Iranians have to be worried that others are now looking at this and saying, Hey, this is possible. You know, it's kind of like you know, saying that oh, the two countries are nuclear weapon states, say India and Pakistan. Uh, can they clash at a sub level that doesn't escalate it to the nuclear threshold? So that's what is. And a lot of people in Islamabad and Delhi now believe, after surgical strikes and Balakot, that yes, indeed, you can have certain levels of escalation below the nuclear threshold. Exactly. So military planners at the Pentagon, you know, at the IDF, at the TSK in Turkey, they're looking at this and saying, you know, these are long range. These are not sort of, you know, we're not, I'm not saying they're about to jump in and go strike at Iran, but you've opened a window, a door to a place where things that were deemed sort of unsavory or impossible or extremely sort of, you wanted to avoid that have now become possible. Because uh, if the United States or Israel decide to strike at when they need to or when they decide to, I don't know about that, uh, they can always look back at this precedent and say, well, you know what, what are the Iranians going to do? Um, and so that's what's worrying the Iranians now, that they've done this. It's not that they didn't know it, but they're, they're up against a wall. They're under extreme pressure. Uh, they have made gains that they in the region, in the Middle East, that they need to secure. And they're fearful of un unintended consequences, one of which is a direct U.S. attack. So in, they decided to strike at Pakistan in order to ward off the U.S., but any action has unintended consequences. And you can't perfectly control an environment. So the Pakistani response now has sort of given ideas to do uh, to everybody else who has a beef with the Iranians, and this is worrying the Iranians. Then on top of that, you know how the this isn't new, by the way, but it's going to get sensitized and more acute. This perception in Iran that Pakistan is weak and therefore malleable. We cannot you know, rule out the possibility that the United States and Pakistan reach an understanding to weaken Iran from its strategic rear. We know, and we already say, and some of us, you know, I don't know if they truly believe that, if it's just info ops, but you have to, uh, you know, at least assume that they do believe it to a certain extent, that Jundullah, Jaish al-Adil are kind of like Pakistan, Saudi tag team Maybe there's an Israeli element to it as well. Who knows? I'm talking about perceptions here. So 
and, and in a world where that becomes so dynamic and, and the, we're up the escalatory ladder in the way we are, uh, you, per, realities matter little and perceptions drive behavior. So they, I will be watching for the Iranians in terms of how they continue to deal. In the short term, I expect them to say, hey, let's calm things down. But can they trust Pakistan? Okay, moving forward, especially after what has happened. They haven't trusted Pakistan, you know, to begin with. But now we're in a new world, in a new place. Likewise, can Pakistan, Pakistan for the longest time did not have to worry about Iran because Iran was doing things in the Middle East. This is Southwest Asia, South Asia, doesn't matter, let them deal with it. Uh, there's no direct impact and there's nothing the Pakistani state has to do directly to counter Iran. But now Pakistan is being sucked into the vortex of what is uh, a broader regional Iranian strategy and, and you know bellicose behavior. And Iran is undergoing a lot of internal stress. So when you have a neighbor like that, can you just kind of say, oh, well, you know what? They fired once, we fired once, and it's game over. I doubt it. This is going to force both the Iranians, these, these mutual suspicions and perceptions, to devote more resources to their joint border. Because, uh, you know, they cannot assume, you know, nothing may happen for months, okay? But they cannot assume all is well. So this places strain on the Pakistanis. Uh, to, you know, have to address another border, a third border. And it also has to, it also forces the Iranians to say, hey, this was the strategic rear. Our whole focus and, you know, concentration has been on the Arab world. And we've already been forced by the Turks on the northern flank because of Azerbaijan, Armenia, the, the shift of the balance of power there. And now we have to deal with the Southeast. And by the way, we haven't talked about Afghanistan. So the Iranians look at this as, well, it's an American term, AFPAC, and Pakistanis don't like it. But for strategic purposes, the Iranians look at Afghanistan and Pakistan as one sort of, if you will, space, broad space that they have to manage. It was secondary, but they're going to have to put a lot more resources here because they don't know, you know, Okay, Pakistan can, you know, is problematic, but is there something that this, we can expect from Afghanistan? The Afghans, the Taliban, have a lot of needs that the international community is not fulfilling. They have to assume that there could be an understanding between the Afghan Taliban and the Americans against Iran. So whether this happens or not is, is a separate conversation. But in, when you calculate, when you plan uh, as a strategic actor, and if, especially if you're Iran, and you're playing this high stakes game, you can't ignore these things. Yeah, I think the distrust, right? I think it's going to be at the core of this situation. In fact, the drills that, that you mentioned, um, I was having an exchange with somebody and trying to get a sense of how the Pakistanis are viewing some of that. And, you know, uh, the Pakistanis were concerned about what the Iranians were doing with these drills because of that distrust, right? And we were joking uh, about the fact that my professor at Fletcher, Professor Schultz, used to always tell us in, in his rule of force class that uh, a tank is a defensive weapon so long as it's in neutral. The moment it goes into drive, it becomes an offensive weapon. So 
just because somebody says the tanks are there for defensive purposes doesn't mean anything because they can start rolling forward at any point in time. And I think that's going to be at the heart of it, right? Every move and counter move will be viewed from this lens of distrust. And I, I want to sort of get a last point from you before we conclude on personalities here, particularly General Munir, who's an Arabicist, right? He's close to the Saudis. He's close to the Emiratis. He's seen as more of an Arab-oriented general than the rest of the ones that have come in the near past. Um, how does that, in your view, sort of at that personal level, shape some of the views both in Tehran and in Rawalpindi about how to go about doing this? So in general, uh, you know, we tend, you know, the, the in, in sort of the public discourse, even amongst experts, there's a lot of focus on personalities, how personalities shape. But personalities are also trapped. Another way of looking at personalities is they're trapped in circumstances. So I would say the same thing you just said, but in a different way and say, General Munir is who he is, okay? He cannot get out of that. He, he, there's a reality, his you know, worldview, his sympathies, his preferences, his likes, his dislikes, they shape his behavior. He's trapped, he cannot, there, very few you know, leaders are able to sort of you know, think or act, much less act outside the box. You know, it does happen, but but by and large, it doesn't. Uh, not on an everyday basis. So I think that personalities will play a role here. Um, and I'm sure the Iranians uh, are looking at this and saying, we have an army chief, uh, you know, in Pakistan who is clearly pro-Saudi. Uh, and, you know, we have to factor that in. And that brings back, you know, the whole Baloch equation. So I think, you know, of course, already we have a situation where the Pakistanis say, well, there are Baloch rebels of ours on your soil. The Iranians have been, act, uh, you know, the whole, this whole tit for tat was presented in a way that, hey, you know, Sunni Baloch Islamist rebels who hate the Islamic Republic of Iran are operating from your soil. But moving forward, uh, the Iranians have to wonder whether the Pakistanis will now kick into higher gear, okay, in supporting those guys. Likewise, the Pakistanis have to, you know, calculate, incorporate into their strategy the possibility that their own Baloch rebels will be helped by Iran. Uh, and then it's not as if these both these actors have no agency, they have their own agency as well. So uh I don't know of how many people are following this, but ever since the Masa Amini protests broke out in Iran last year, uh, Sistan wa Balochistan province has been a hotbed of unrest, massive unrest. Some of the biggest protests, sustained protests have taken place there. Uh, why? Because there is resentment towards uh, you know, their treatment as a minority ethnically and religiously. Uh, and of course, you know, there are separatist tendencies uh, and they're looking at opportunities. They're looking at a declining, you know, uh, a weakening, if you will, Islamic Republic, and they would like to push forward. I'd like to add that uh, one of the top clerics, actually the top cleric in, in Zahidan, uh, the big town in Sistan, Baluchistan, uh, who was appointed by Khamenei, has been 
visceral in his attacks on Khamenei. That is unprecedented. So there is that thing brewing. So, you know, the Iranians say, these are, this is a Sunni minority restive. Will the Taliban and the Pakistanis come to their aid or not? Uh, likewise, Baloch rebels inside Pakistan are saying, now that Iran and Pakistan are fighting, how can we, you know, manipulate this to our advantage? How can we take advantage of this? And then we haven't talked about Daesh at all. Daesh is looking, this is the perfect kind of cross-border uh, reality that they've exploited on the Iraq-Syria frontier, and they've sort of mastered the game on that. We can expect Daesh to exploit this as well. So this story has just begun. The actors and the issues are old, but they will take new permutations and combinations that we need to be watching for. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that's a great uh, place to end this conversation. Um, I think you and I offline have talked about this, but in my mind, over since ever since October seventh and the atrocities that have started, you know, thereafter, um, have made me think about you know old parallels in history, and I sort of go back to uh, from, and maybe this is a bias because of what I studied in grad school, etc. But I look at sort of the USSR's defeat in Afghanistan. Um, I look at the first Intifada. And then I look at the first Gulf War as sort of the three key events, in my mind at least, that birthed sort of the rise of Al-Qaeda and that culminated in events leading up to and then including 9-11 that changed the world that we live in. Um, and now we're in a moment in time, at least that's how I'm in my mind framing things and studying them is we've had the U.S. exit in Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul, essentially a defeat uh, of the American project in Afghanistan. We've had um, October 7th and what's happening in, in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, and now we have, you know, on top of it, we had Ukraine uh, playing out as well and Syria and Iraq and Yemen as failed states in the region itself. So those are big events that will birth new conditions for new things to happen. Old issues, as you said, right, rightfully. So this is not new stuff. Old issues that will now become alive in new ways that perhaps uh, we cannot anticipate. And it's going to be a very tricky period moving forward. I agree with you. It's not by no means over. I think this is just the first chapter in what is to come. So Agreed. So on that note, thank you so much, Kamran, for joining us. Always a pleasure talking to you. And I will link the Amaj piece. I, I think you should send me some of your older pieces that you mentioned uh, on sort of the things you've written about. Um, and I also link the old conversation. I think it was last year uh, we had on the protests in Iran. And this came up uh, about Balochistan in that conversation. For, so for those of you who want to dig a bit deeper, there are some links in the description. So as always, wonderful chatting with you and have a great weekend. Thank you. Pleasure is always mine.